Chapter Twelve of the Giant's Robe by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Launched. Mark had now cut himself adrift and established himself in rooms in one of the small streets about Connaught Square, where he waited for his schemes to accomplish themselves. He still retained his mastership in St. Peter's although he hoped to be able to throw that up as soon as he could do so with any prudence and the time that was not occupied by his school duties he devoted to the perfecting of his friend's work it was hardly a labour of love and he came to it with an ever-increasing weariness all the tedious toiling through piles of proofs and revised proofs the weeding out of ingenious perversions which seemed to possess a hydra-like power of multiplication after the first eradication began to inspire him with an infinite loathing of the book which was his and not his own it had never interested him he had never been able to feel the slightest admiration for any part of it and at times he ceased to believe in it altogether and think that after all he had transgressed to no purpose and that his own book would have been a stronger staff to lean upon than this reed he had borrowed but he had to go on with it now and trust to his good luck for the consequences but still there were moments when he trembled at what he had done and could not bear to be so constantly reminded of it there was a little story in the book which one of the subordinate characters told to a child the distressing history of a small sugar prince on a twelfth cake who believed himself to be a fairy and was taken tenderly away from a children's party by a little girl who as the prince supposed would restore him somehow to his proper position in fairyland instead of which however she took him home to an ordinary nursery and ate him mark was doubtful of the wisdom of retaining this story in the book at all it seemed to him out of place there but as he had some scruples about cutting it out he allowed it to remain a decision which was not without after effect upon his fortunes the title of the book underwent one more change for mr fladgate's mind misgave him at the last moment as to his own first suggestion and it was finally settled that the book should be called illusion which suited mark quite as well as anything else and so in due time mark read with a certain curious thrill the announcement that illusion a romance by cyril ernstone was now ready at all libraries he sent no presentation copies not even to trixie he had thought of doing so but when it came to the point he could not it was early one saturday afternoon in march mark had walked back by a long round from the school to his lodgings through the parks and the flower-beds were gay with lilac yellow and white of crocus and snowdrop the smoke-blackened twigs were studded with tiny spikes of tender green and the air was warm and subtly aromatic with the promise of spring even in the muddy tainted streets the lent lilies and narcissus flowers in the street sellers baskets gave touches of passing sweetness to the breeze 
Mark felt a longing to get further away from the town and enjoy what remained of the afternoon on higher ground and in purer air. He would go up to Hampstead, he thought, and see the lights sweeping over the rusty bracken on the heath. Or walk down over Highgate Hill and past the quaint old brick houses with their high trim laurel hedges and their last century wrought iron gateways and lamps in which the light of other days no longer burns. But he did not go to either place that afternoon, for when he ran up to his rooms to change his hat and coat, he saw that on his table, which made him forget his purpose altogether, it was a packet enclosed in a wrapper which bore the name of his publishers on the outside, and he knew at once before opening that it contained reviews. He tore off the wrapper eagerly, for now at last he would learn whether he had made a bold and successful stroke, or only a frightful mistake. Beginners have taken up reviews before now, cowering in anticipation before the curse of Balaam, to receive an unexpected benediction. But perhaps no one could be quite so unprepared for this pleasant form of surprise as Mark, for others have written the works that are criticised, and though they may have worked themselves up into a surface ferment of doubt and humility, deep down in their hearts there is a wonderfully calm acceptance, after the first shock, of the most extravagant eulogy. The opening paragraphs of the first critique were enough to relieve Mark's main anxiety. Holroyd's book was not a failure. There could be no doubt of that. It was treated with respectful consideration as the work of a man who was entitled to be taken seriously. If reviews had any influence, and it can scarcely be questioned that a favourable review has much, this one alone could not fail to bring illusion its fair share of attention. Mark laid down the first paper with a sense of triumph. If a very ordinary book like poor Holroyd's was received in this way, what might he not expect when he produced his own? Then he took up the next. Here the critic was more measured in his praise. The book he pronounced to be, on the whole, a good and very nearly a great one, a fine conception fairly worked out. But there was too strong a tendency in parts to a certain dreamy mysticism. Here Mark began to regret that he had not been more careful over the proofs. While the general tone was a little too metaphysical, and the whole marred by even more serious blemishes. The author, continued the reviewer, whose style is for the most part easy and dignified, with a praiseworthy absence of all inflation or bombast, seems at times to have been smitten by a fatal desire to split the ears of the groundlings, and produce an impression by showy parades of a not overwhelmingly profound scholarship and the effect of these contrasts would be grotesque in the extreme, were it not absolutely painful in a work of such high average merit. What, for instance, will be thought of the taste of a writer who could close a really pathetic scene of estrangement between the lovers by such a sentence as the following? The sentence which followed was one of those which Mark had felt it due to himself to interpolate. This was but one example said the inexorable critic there were other instances more flagrant still and in all of these the astonished mark recognized his own improvements 
to say that this was for the moment an exceedingly unpleasant shock to his self-satisfaction is to state a sufficiently obvious fact but mark's character must have been very imperfectly indicated if it surprises any one to hear that it did not take him long to recover from the blow perhaps he had been wrong in grafting his own strong individuality on an entirely foreign trunk he had not been careful enough to harmonize the two styles it was merely an odd coincidence that the reviewer struck naturally enough by the disparity should have pitched upon him as the offender by and by he grew to believe it a positive compliment that the reviewer no doubt a dull person had simply singled out for disapproval all the passages which were out of his depth if there had been nothing remarkable about them they would not have been noticed at all and so as it is a remarkable peculiarity of the mind of man that it can frequently be set at ease by some self-constructed theory which would not bear its own examination for a minute as if a quack were to treat himself with his own bread-pills and feel better mark having convinced himself that the reviewer was a crass fool whose praise and blame were to be read conversely found the wound to his self-love begin to heal from that moment that same saturday afternoon mabel was sitting in the little room at the back of the house in which she received her own particular friends wrote her letters and read just then she was engaged in the latter occupation for the books had come in from the library that day and she had sat down after luncheon to skim them through before selecting any which seemed worth more careful reading mabel had grown to be fastidious in the matter of fiction the natural result of a sense of humour combined with an instinctive appreciation of style there had been a time of course when released from the strict censorship of a boarding-school under which all novels on the very lengthy index expurgatorius had to be read in delicious stealth she had devoured eagerly any literature which was in bright covers and three volumes but that time was past now she could not cry over cheap pathos or laugh at second-hand humour or shudder at sham cynicism any longer desperate escapes and rescues moved her not and she had wearied of beautiful wicked fiends and effeminate golden-haired guardsmen who hold a titanic strength in reserve as their one practical joke but the liberty she had enjoyed had done her no particular harm even if many mothers might have thought it their duty to restrict it which mrs langton was too languid or had too much confidence in her daughter to think of attempting mabel had only returned to the works of the great masters of this century with an appreciation heightened by contrast and though her new delight in them did not blind her as why should it to the lesser lights in whom something may be found to learn or enjoy she now had standards by which she could form her opinions of them amongst the books sent in that week was illusion a romance by cyril ernstone and mabel had looked at its neat grey-green covers and red lettering with a little curiosity for somebody had spoken of it to her the day before and she took it up with the intention of reading a chapter or two before going out with her racket into the square where the tennis season had already set in on the level corner of the lawn 
but the afternoon wore on and she remained by the window in a low wicker chair indifferent to the spring sunshine outside to the attractions of lawn tennis or the occasional sounds of callers reading on with parted lips and an occasional little musical laugh or involuntary sigh as holroyd had once dreamed of seeing his book read by her his strong and self-contained nature had unfolded all its deepest tenderness and most cherished fancies in that first book and the pages had the interest of a confession mabel felt that personal affection for the unknown writer which to have aroused must be the crown of crowns to those who love their art the faults of style and errors of taste here and there which jarred upon her were still too rare or too foreign to the general tone of the book to prejudice her seriously and she put down the book half finished not from weariness but with an unusual desire to economize the pleasure it gave her i wonder what cyril ernstone is like she thought half unconsciously perhaps by the way a popular but plain author who finds it necessary to cultivate society would discover if he would go about veiled or engage a better-looking man to personate him a speedy increase in the circulation of his next work and if at all sensitive as to his own shortcomings he would certainly be spared a considerable amount of pain for it is trying for a man who rather enjoys being idolized to be compelled to act as his own iconoclast while mabel was speculating on the personal appearance of the author of illusion dolly darted in suddenly oh there you are mabel she said how lazy of you mother thought you were playing tennis and some people have called and she and i had to do all the talking to them come and dress then dolly said mabel putting an arm up and drawing her down to a low stool by her chair i've got my new sash on said dolly warningly i'll be careful said mabel and i've found a little story in this book i'm going to read to you dolly if you care about it not a long story is it mab inquired dolly rather dubiously but she finally settled herself comfortably down to listen with her bright little face laid against mabel's side while she read the melancholy fate of the sugar fairy prince dolly heard it all out in silence and with a growing trouble in her eyes when it was all over and the heartless mortal princess had swallowed the sugar prince she half turned away and said softly mabel that was me mabel laughed what do you mean dolly she said i thought he was plain sugar dolly protested piteously how was i to know i never heard of sugar fairies before and he did look pretty at first but i spilt some tea over him and the colour got all mixed up just as the story says it did and so i ate him it's only a story dolly you know you needn't make yourself unhappy about it it isn't true really but it must be true it's all put down exactly as it happened and it was me i've eaten up a real fairy prince mabel i'm a greedy pig if i hadn't done it perhaps we could have got him out of the sugar somehow and then colin and i would have had a live fairy to play with 
that's what he expected me to do and i ate him instead i know he was a fairy mabel he tasted so nice poor poor little prince dolly was so evidently distressed that mabel tried hard to convince her that the story was about another little girl the prince was only a sugar one and so on but she did not succeed until the idea struck her that a writer whose book seemed to indicate a sympathetic nature would not object to the trouble of removing the childish fears he had aroused and she said listen dolly suppose you write a letter to mr ernstone at his publishers you know i'll show you how to address it but you must write the rest yourself and ask him to tell you if the sugar prince was really a fairy and then you will know all about it but my own belief is dolly that there aren't any fairies now at any rate if there weren't argued dolly people wouldn't write books about them i've seen pictures of them lots of times and they dance in rows at the pantomime don't they dolly said mabel oh i know those aren't fairies only thin little girls said dolly contemptuously i'm not a baby mabel but i would write to mr what you said just now only i hate letter writing so ink is such blotty messy stuff and i dare say he wouldn't answer after all try him dear said mabel dolly looked obstinate and said nothing just then and mabel did not think it well to refer to the matter again but the next week from certain little affectations of tremendous mystery on dolly's part and the absence of the library copy of illusion from the morning-room during one whole afternoon after which it reappeared in a state of preternatural inkiness mabel had a suspicion that her suggestion was not so disregarded as it had seemed and a few days afterwards mark found on his breakfast-table an envelope from his publisher which proved to contain a letter directed to mr cyril ernstone at the office the letter was written in a round childish hand with scrapings here and there to record the fall of a vanquished blot dear mr cyril ernstone it ran i want you to tell me how you knew that i ate that sugar prince in your story and if you meant me really perhaps you made that part of it up or else it was some other girl but please write and tell me who it was and all about it because i do so hate to think i've eaten up a real fairy without knowing it dorothy margaret langton this poor little letter made mark very angry if he had written the story he would of course have been amused if not pleased by the naive testimony to his power but as it was it annoyed him to a quite unreasonable extent he threw dolly's note pettishly across the table i wish i had cut that sugar prince story out i can't tell the child anything about it langton too wonder if it's any relation to my langton sister of his perhaps he lives at notting hill somewhere well i won't write if i do i shall put my foot in it somehow it's quite likely that vincent knew this child she can't be seriously unhappy about such a piece of nonsense and if she is it's not my fault mark had never quite lost the memory of that morning in the fog 
his brief meeting with mabel and the untimely parting by the hedge subsequent events had naturally done nothing to efface the impression which her charm and grace had made upon him then but even yet he saw her face at times as clearly as ever and suffered once more the dull pain he had felt when he first knew that she had gone from him without leaving him the faintest hope of being ever privileged to know her more intimately or even see her again sometimes when he dreamed most wildly of the brilliant future that was to come to him he saw himself as the author of several famous and successful works amongst which illusion was entirely obscured meeting her once more and marking his sense of her past ingratitude by a studied coldness but this was a possibility that never even in his most sanguine moments was other than remote if he had but known it there had long been close at hand in the shape of young langton a means which judiciously managed might have brought that part of his dream to pass immediately and now he had that which would realize it even more surely and effectually but he did not know and let the appeal lie unanswered that was due to mabel's suggestion the moral of which as alice's duchess might say is that one should never neglect a child's letter End of chapter 12